All right, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. I am Black on the Air. Um, good to have you guys back because there's so much shit going on. It never stops, you guys. Two thousand, the end of 2016 to right now, it's been this continual shitstorm. It's been unbelievable. Like we've been hit with this meteor storm of just shit, you know, from uh, from our president, our grand leader, um, who I. You know, everybody talks about divisiveness and all that stuff. And I know I'm jumping right in the middle of this. I lay everything at the hands of the president, who's just an asshole. You know, I called him a dick last week, and I mean that. He really is not only a dick, but he revels in dick moves, you know. And this week is another good example of it. But it's framed by this whole everybody's panties are in a bunch over civility all of a sudden. Like now people are concerned about civility because of the couple of things that happened. You know, the Sarah Huckabee, Colonel Sanders was kicked out of um was it the Red Hen? I think it was a restaurant. And I love it when the right gets so upset when stuff like this happens. This is a pretty amazing thing, you guys. And I didn't, I'll be honest with you, for these things that happen over the weekend, this all this stuff, I was kind of of two minds on it. I wasn't sure when I heard about it. And you may relate to this of how to feel about it initially. You, I mean, if you're on the left, of course, you kind of like cheer for it. But at the same time, like, mm, do we want to be kicking people out of restaurants and that kind of thing? But then you go, well, it was Sarah could be Sanders. So I ain't mad at them. I kind of understand, you know. But to me, it is, uh, no pun intended, a lot of this is kind of chickens coming home to roost, you know. And I go back to just how uncivil these motherfuckers were to Obama during his term. All the cries. Of, remember, Glenn Beck spent a week on Fox News. Fox News telling us why Obama was Hitler and deconstructing it and breaking it down. And in all seriousness, by the way, Hitler, you know, and, uh, you know, all the horrible things said about Michelle Obama, you know, calling her a gorilla and all these kinds of things, you know. And now somebody gets kicked out of a restaurant and suddenly the world is so uncivil. Fuck you, motherfuckers. The world's not uncivil now. This shit was happening before. But I just love... uh, the way in which these things happen to the right, they just make me laugh. Sarah Huckabee Sanders getting kicked out of that, at the end of the day, it just kind of made me laugh, you know, even though the whole situation is sad. And I love the irony of it being the red hen, because what was the, wasn't there a fable of the little red hen? You know, she was uh, trying to work and everything, and people weren't helping her do something that was productive. You know, and then they wanted to eat the feast at the end. She wouldn't let them eat. It's kind of what happened at the Red Hen. I think they see Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the Trump administration. They're not helping build the type of society that we want to build. And now they want to eat. And we're saying, nope, sorry. Everybody in the restaurant's thrown up in their mouths. We can't allow you to eat, which is pretty much what happened. But the reaction to it is what's amazing to me. And then the other thing over the weekend was Maxine Waters at a... uh, at a rally. I guess it was a rally. I always went, it's so weird. I don't know where Maxine Waters was. It looked like she was in Dealey Plaza or something. Like there was a double underpass, <laughs> overpass or whatever behind her. Uh, but it was so, uh, it was so bizarre. You know, at the end of it, she's calling for people to like, if, hey, if you see these people, you know, who are in the Trump cabinet, let them know how you think. Go up and say blah, 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 whatever. And at first when I heard that, I was like, come on, Maxine Waters, you're an elected official. You can't be telling people to go do that stuff. That's just not right, you know. And I pretty much agree with people who said she was over the top. I use the word over the top is what I'm using because I, I think at the end of the day, that's what it was, over the top. But then the more I listened to what she actually said, I kind of had to take that back. I kind of now am sitting in the, you know what? Good for you, Maxine Waters. Yes, tell people they should do that. And I'll tell you what the difference is. I'll tell you why I think this way now. Because here's what how the right is kind of framing it. They're framing it as Maxine Waters are telling people on the left to tell everybody they disagree with, like to yell at them and to do harm to them. And even the president spun it that way. But that's not what she said. Maxine Waters said, she said specifically about the Trump cabinet. These are the people who are working directly with Trump 
you know, who are uh, are the dolers of the lies, who dole it out all the time, continuously, you know, because Trump lies all the time, so they have no choice. They have to be complicit in what he's doing. And, uh, you know, a lot of things that he's doing, of course, people are really upset about it. And she's just saying, let them know. That's really all she's saying is let them know. But they're extrapolating that into meaning something else. And that's the part that I find the most disingenuous. And I'll tell you what, what I want to tie this into, which is, which is another seminal moment that happened. And when I say I'm of two minds of things, I'm of two minds in different ways, too, because a lot of the, like, I, I'm not a person who's going to yell at somebody and all that kind of stuff, too. I really think our energy should be in changing things, mobilizing people, voting, and that kind of stuff. Just get those motherfuckers out of there, I think, is where I'd like to put my energy into. But I just want to talk about this for a second because the Supreme Court released their ruling on the whole travel ban thing. And I think that kind of makes the point of what this larger issue is and what is at the root of, I think, the divide between the right and the left in this country right now. It really kind of spells it out in an interesting way because it's a 5-4 decision in favor of it. And the way that it was um, argued for, you can't really argue against. Basically, the argument is that the president has the right to do this travel ban because the very specific language of the travel ban really just calls for the president to put a restriction on people traveling here from certain countries. It's very literal language, right? The dissenters of that opinion aren't doing it based on the actual language of the travel ban. They're doing it because they know what a motherfucking asshole Trump is. I mean, that's really where the dissent comes from because Trump himself said that he wanted to ban all Muslims from coming into his country. We didn't make that shit up. He said that when he was running for office, right? And he even said a year ago, he said a year ago in a, in a tweet, I think it was uh, June 5th, he said the Justice Department should have stayed with the original travel ban, not the watered-down, politically correct version they submitted to the Supreme Court. So he even hated that because it wasn't saying exactly what he wanted to say is ban all Muslims. But what his people did, and they did it in a very smart way, was to make the language palatable enough that it could not be denied. It made it took away the feelings in it, like the true intent, and only had the uh, exact language in it. And so the Supreme Court has to deal with that language. Now, this is where I think a lot of our divide is. Um, literalness and intent, okay? I believe that on the right right now, a lot of things they get away with and a lot of the way they frame arguments are through literalness. And on the left, a lot of the way we're looking at things and the way we're framing arguments is with intent. And let me be more specific about that. Let's look at the Constitution, in fact. Um, the way that the right always views the Constitution is that this perfect document that needs to be interpreted literally for the exact meaning of what the framers intended with these words at the time that they intended it. It is a literal document. Not to be fucked with, right? Um, it's the same thing about religious fundamentalism. It's the same type of thing. Whereas on the left, they always look at the Constitution for the intent. What is the, the document is more of a living document whose purpose is to um, support a country that is moving forward all the time and to be the basis, you know, the rock-solid foundation acknowledging that this country is changing all the time and is the basis for that change. As an example, all men are created equal. The little meaning of that at the time, of course, everybody acknowledges that by saying men, we mean white men, and we certainly don't mean women, and we certainly don't mean black people. And if you take the literal meaning of that at the time, that's exactly what it's going to keep meaning, you know. But if you take the intent of that, that we're all created equal and we all have, you know, the uh, right, the unalienable rights given by our creators or whatever it is, you know, then you have to treat that as a living document that includes people depending on what happens. And this isn't, you know, moral relativism. This is just looking at something with wisdom as well as just a strict interpretation, okay? I believe that is how things 
are divided into this country and the way people look at things. And it's even when people look at words and all that kind of stuff and issues and everything. And so the thing we have to look at right now, I think, is the way that I think Trump is getting away with a lot of things and the way he intends to get away with things is through language and very specific language. And he uses Twitter to tell us what he exactly thinks, which is hilarious to me. Because Twitter is almost like Jiminy Cricket. It's, I mean, it's almost like we get to hear his actual thoughts. But then he uses his minions to put those horrible thoughts into language that can't be argued with, right? That's pretty fucked up, you guys. How do we fight that? We can kick people out of restaurants. We can yell at people in gas stations. Okay. Or we can get out there and change the shit by voting. Guys, this is what I'm going to focus on for the next six months. We have to put different people in office, and we have to do it now. Biggest example is Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell won yesterday. This 5-4 decision on ideological lines is because Supreme, the Supreme Court uh, Gorsuch is on the right, and that was Obama's pick. And Mitch McConnell said, no, fuck you, motherfucker. That ain't going to happen as long as I'm here. I'm going to bet on the fact that this shit is going to change, and fuck the rules. I don't care. And the reason I can do this is because we're in power. Votes, you guys. It's all because of votes. Mitch McConnell kicked some ass. He kicked some Democratic ass. And we have to turn this around so we can do the same. Because here's what's at stake. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's, a, she's close. She's like 85, I think. Kennedy leaves. It's not as big a deal because he's mainly on the right. But Ginsburg leaves. That's a huge fucking deal, you guys. That's huge. If she is replaced by a conservative... Do you know how fucked we are and for how long? Seriously, this 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 is the game that's being played for keeps right now, okay? This is the literal game, all right? This is not the crying game. This is not the shouting game. This is the literal game that is played for keeps. We have to change the balance in the house, and we have to set the rules down, and we have to have somebody running that house and running that Senate that when one of these people leaves before Trump is over, say, uh-uh. Sorry, motherfucker, this ain't gonna happen. These are the rules you wanted to play with. We're going by the letter of the law. This is the, we're, we're being literal to how you interpreted how a Supreme Court nominee should be handled and play their game against them. Because that's what we're up against. We gotta get out there. And that's what true civility is. Civility isn't just being nice. It isn't just showing manners. Civility is coming together as a civil society and making people uncomfortable and doing the right thing. And yelling at people who are not doing the right thing when you have to. And sometimes kicking people out of the red hen because everybody is throwing up in their mouths. <laughs> sometimes it's that. I'm not saying I would do it. I'm just saying I ain't mad at it either. That's all I'm saying. All right. Oh, man, we have a fun show today. Mike Pesca. I'm talking to. I always forget to mention the guests at the top. I don't know why I do that. But Mike Pesca, he is a uh, part of the Slate podcast. He's one of my favorite people out there. He's so smart. But he has a book on... Uh, sports out right now that's real, real cool he's imagining alternate realities and futures so we're going to come back and talk to him and that's it today's guest as i mentioned before is he is arguably the best podcaster around and then we'll have an argument about this Damn it. but i'll tell you why <laughs> Do I have to take a pose no mike <laughs> because uh mike pesca author of upon further review the greatest what ifs in sports history congratulations on the book thanks. mike thanks mike. and uh his podcast the gist which is on the slate podcast network i guess you could say yes um like i'm on the ringer network he's on the slate <laughs> network when is it a network collide, it is it's a, a network, network. Huh? But Mike is so good, you guys. If you're not listening to The Gist, please. He's He's been doing this for a long time. He knows what he's doing. But he loves what he's doing, which is what I appreciate about listening to you, no matter what you're talking about. Yes. Which the, is always good. We just had episode 1000 on The Gist. Congratulations. The Thanks yeah. a lot. We it, at, at, at around episode 90, 98, someone said, you know, yeah. two episodes from now. And I was like, <laughs> Damn it. I'm on a book tour. Um and I do love it. And the number yeah. one compliment that I get is friends of mine who haven't checked in with me in a while uh -huh. sometimes say, uh, you haven't gotten a call because I just listened to the gist. And that's you. That just, I just that feel nice? like I'm hanging out with you. It's nice. I get that, too, <laughs> where people say, yeah, I, I, it's almost the same thing. I haven't talked to you in a while, but I feel like you're in my house. Uh, but since we both start our shows with some version of a monologue, what yeah. do we like as friends? What does that mean? Yeah, do we I just know. talk at people for seven <laughs> straight minutes? Hey, how's it going? Wait, before we get into us, right. let me just talk mm -hmm. to you about this. And then 
let rant. me punctuate it with an ad yeah. for socks. <laughs> right. I know. Exactly. Yeah, the ads are very weird. You yeah. Know? It's a, I'm still not comfortable doing them. I have no problem with them because right. I know that's what allows us to do what we do. Yeah. Um, do do you now? You've done so. It's a thousand. Is that what you're saying? I'm on a thousand five as we thousand speak. Thousand five, something like that. So has this been a road that you've enjoyed? Did is it lived up to your expectations? What you thought it would be? And when I first started doing it, so I worked for mm -hmm. NPR for ten years. Right. And I did sports you're for seven sports. years for NPR. Yeah. Um, and I said I. I consistently have thoughts, many thoughts. Yeah. I feel like every week I have a bunch of thoughts that can't really yeah. go anywhere. Right. They don't have an outlet in sports or if I write a freelance piece. Yeah. But will I really have, when I was thinking about the show, will I really have two to three thoughts a day? Will I be able <laughs> yeah. to generate that many thoughts? And that, until you do it, you don't know, it has yeah. not been a problem at all. Yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I always find that it's when you sign up for something and you have to show up for something, do you actually have something in many cases? You know? it, it is a great boon yeah. to creativity. There are a couple things yeah. that help creativity, and one is limits. Yes. One is, I, I agree with that, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Many artists don't agree with that. I think it's very important. The artists that don't agree with it, maybe some people you've collaborated with, have <laughs> their work ethic. Because often... Yeah. no, you're right. Yeah, if you put some structure, and this is what I did with the book, and... Yeah. It's all about applying structure and within the structure, that's when the creativity flourishes. Right. And if you look at, you know, the Hayes Code in Hollywood and yes. when they had to live by the rules, right. that's also, it, it strikes me as not a coincidence that that's when film noir flourished. Because yes. it's all about glances and yeah. sideward looks and, yeah. you know, through, I don't want people to be censored and I'm glad that artists can be as free to express, but it's great yeah. to have some walls and then you could decorate the interior and go nuts. Well, the, what's interesting about that I, I agree with you completely. It's a different type of of art. It, they were forced to use language in many different subtle types of ways to hint at things that bluntness what did later. Yes, you know, blunt language, which you could argue sometimes. You know, if you look at your your mammoths and your peck and paws, you know, people who did movies that had certain type of blunt language on purpose. Yeah. You know, for art, I guess. Yeah. But many times it's just lazy and sloppy. Right. So a couple like, or tours come along, like Woo or Tarantino's ripping right. off those guys but paying homage. And they yes. they know what they're doing. And yes. it's purposeful. Right. Then hundreds just ape that and it becomes this deluge yeah. of meaninglessness, really. It kind of happened in comedy in some ways. Like Richard Pryor to me was the best motherfucker comic. Right. And what I mean by that, well, he and George Carlin, in different ways, were the best motherfucker comics. Because <laughs> they were the, they used profanity in a way which lifted what they were doing. It didn't just get laughs. You know, Carlin did it on purpose in a super way, and Pryor did it in a personal way that nobody had really done it before, which made you feel like you were his friend, you know? Yes, and that was right. definitely the way he was talking. And I think that, to me, the limits, uh, there is censorship, there is the FCC, but great comics, like I've heard Gaffigan talk about why he works clean, mm -hmm. and I think it's essentially because he wants to give himself some rules, right? Yeah. And he loves dirty comics. He laughs sure. just as much as people who don't work clean. Yeah. So I really think that's going on. And I also think that one of the, so we're in this moment where there's this backlash to bro culture, or toxic masculinity, right. or whatever you want to talk about. And I think it came out from the era of slobs versus snobs and Animal House. Mm -hmm. And rebelliousness was the guys from Animal House. Right. And that was done purposefully and well. And then it just became, you know, who cares? And yeah, Porky's it became an, and id, an id expression. Right. right. And then there was no, without any limits, it just became schlock. And now we're actually reacting against that. Do we have anything to rebel against now? I once, you'd probably relate to this, but I was reading a good review of, I think, something about Groucho Marx. And mm -hmm. the point was... One of my all-time favorites. It's yeah. not that we don't have geniuses along the level of the Marx Brothers. Mm -hmm. It's just that society is no longer Margaret Dumont. Yes. We know. Very interesting. Right? Although I would argue that George S. Kaufman would still be an important writer today who wrote a lot of the early Marx Brothers. Yeah, there are some things yeah. that transcends. The cleverness yeah, transcends. Because his... Perlman and a yes, Kaufman. Yes, the Perlman and, and those people. Yeah. Because their wit... Was, is so interesting. It was always revealing. Um, their pens yeah. were amazing. I that's guess like you could a, say. that's like to me a poetry. And there is yeah. that sort of wit on a show like Kimmy Schmidt yeah. or shows where you don't even not even with you know broad physical comedy. Yeah, I think the wit comes through. I love a show like that. It's interesting how sometimes you almost I, I understand, and this is going to sound weird. I understand young people that are conservatives now as an act of rebellion. 
I do too. Like I completely get that, Mike, because they feel I think, and I can't speak for them, but I think a lot of them feel like it's conformity to be a leftist, you know, and it's constricting. And the the spirit of youth is to wish to rebel. To rebel. And I know right. that they Not are agree with your professors. Yeah, yeah, and I know <laughs> right. that they are Who saying are all on the left. Well, we as a whole yeah. represent a rebellion against the patriarchy, but as a right. lived experience, it just has got to be so so crushing. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder because I have been at my in different times of my life a registered Republican. In sure. fact, when I was eighteen, I registered as a Republican because mm-hmm. my dad said, "If you don't, you're never going to get a job at the county pool." I grew up in Nassau County, and the Republican controlled that. I didn't want a job at the county pool, but it seemed like as good a reason as any. So I was a Republican and my dad, who's a social studies teacher, always subscribed me to the New Republic and the National Review. So I always had both strains of thought. And I found... By the way, if you're going to choose two, those are two really good ones that have some very excellent writing in both and of them. And in the yeah. 80s, Michael Kinsley is yes. editing one and yeah. Buckley's still going strong at the right. others. And these are the exemplars, yeah. the best form of those points of view. Yeah. And so if I was a young conservative today, damn it, I hope I w- wouldn't be reading Breitbart and thinking that no. were true. Breitbart has nothing to do with Buckley. Right. So right. I have always challenged myself and I always think there's a great virtue in exposing yourself to people you don't mm-hmm. agree with. I listened to a podcast called The Editors of the National Review, the same National Review, and those guys are brilliant and they actually sometimes do change my mind not on things like gun control but you know Ryan Salam was talking about immigration policy and how not to be cruel and I could absolutely understand where he's coming from in a way that if I only got my news not even from partisans but mainstream non-inflected media I wouldn't understand as much but putting that that aside to go back to the college question mm-hmm. I sometimes ask myself that and I sometimes say I do think that there that all the uh, college republicanism that gets a lot of attention is really tied up with uh, racism and nationalism and that wouldn't have an appeal to me but I did this uh, talk at Yale where they have a club called the William F Buckley Club mm-hmm. where he was and it's basically centrists or moderates or just right. people who aren't doctrinaire liberals coming to campus and talking yeah. And I said to myself, I don't know if you've had this moment, these are my people. These yeah. would be my people. Sure, absolutely. And it's going strong and not getting attention. What gets attention is Milo Yiannopoulos coming to campus. Sure, right. Yeah, but I think that there are a lot of people who are looking for a wider point of view. That said, Definitely. I've talked to people, friends of mine who teach at Harvard, a friend of mine taught a class on editorial writing, and he was saying that there are so many people with just non-doctrinaire liberal opinions who would say, yeah, I didn't express that in class. I don't yeah. feel that it's great to express it in class. And I used to think that those things were all exaggerated, just something that the right-wing media would jump on and say, oh, this is an oppression of speech. But I hear anecdotally that it goes on. And, you know, I got to worry about it. Right. I, I honestly think that hacky, opportunistic republicanism has <laughs> overshadowed thoughtful conservatism. Yeah. Although that's my, that's my basic opinion. Although, to put it back on the Republicans and the conservatives, mm-hmm. when the poster guy for thoughtful conservatism right. is Paul Ryan. Right. And then when you really deep dig down into no, what he, he thinks... he's a hacky Republican. I know, but he's, <laughs> he's held out as the thoughtful conservative. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, he was the budget hawk. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. whatever that means. I think it was the... It's like some nickname. I for, think it's his haircut. I think it yeah, comes to the peak. It's like a 30s sidekick or something. The budget hawk. <laughs> budget hawk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or something like that. yeah, let's knock down these doors. Yeah. The G-men are coming in and the budget hawk is swooping. Well, Ryan is the one of the most disappointing of hacks. You know, because if if I were on that side, I wouldn't know. I'd be so disappointed in somebody like Ryan. Like to me, it's just expected now that yeah. there are so many on that side has just sold sold out to winning because winning is what they're most interested in. So what do they care what horse is crossing the line? Not to say that the Democrats don't feel that way, but we yeah. just haven't had that Trump figure. Yeah, <laughs> I, there's been less winning too. Right. Um, on the gist, I did. A spiel, which is the last segment on the show, uh-huh. comparing there were pretty there was similar moments of choosing between the GOP and ABC when uh-huh. it came to Roseanne. They had a moment like yeah. either you stand with the racist or you don't. Yes. So I played all the clips of of Ryan saying that's textbook racism about right. the Judge Curiel comments, and I yeah. played the tape of uh, Chaffetz, the Utah representative who sure. has since quit, saying I, I, I'm not going to endorse him. He didn't endorse him, but he did 
publicly announced he voted for him. So they had their time of choosing. And what they chose is to stay with the racist. Yeah. And ABC had their time of choosing. And they chose at a great cost. It's not as if there wouldn't have been costs to pay by separating yourself. ABC chose not to stay with the racist. And the funny thing to me is, what's ABC's mission statement? It's a network. It's an amoral network that makes money for its shareholders. And what's the GOP's mission statement? A moral exemplar as we are here to represent at least half of the policies of the American people. The difference, though, uh-huh. is that ABC Network is run by a black female. Sure. <laughs> and, and the, the other like Condoleezza is, is that close to power. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> is run by a white male who, you know, is the uh, whatever. You know, the, I've run out of things, ways to describe Trump at this point, you know. But to <laughs> me, Roseanne, that whole thing was like, you know, you got it like as a comedian, like I always see her lecturing comedians on Twitter and yeah, stuff, you know. It, bizarrely. But she left out the most important rule of comedy, know your audience, you know, and know who's paying your bills. Channing Dungey, you know, a black woman who's the head of ABC, and she's yeah. going to make this analogy. Right, so that's interesting. You know? So at least and you could say... And she was not playing around. No. So, and this, to me, that was this was not even a, a right side, left side, left, right type of thing. To me, I always feel racism falls in a whole different category. It's like, sorry, this is just a fucked up thing that you can't say. So, sorry, I don't care whether you're Democrat or Republican. This is not a political issue. Yeah. You know, stop calling black women apes. Let's start doing that. Yeah. Stop doing that. And let's not try to pretend there's an analogy to an orangutan and uh, President Trump. It's not analogous. Do you think if a different person were in charge of that network, there'd be no chance that Roseanne would be off the air? I don't think it would have happened as fast. Well, how about probably. Wanda Sykes immediately disassociating herself from the Black show? Black woman. Right. Right. That had an impact. So if yeah. that shows on ABC and Wanda does that, and maybe some of the other writers. No. No? It's not the same. The The color that showbiz cares most about is green. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the way it is, you know. Black, white, whatever. It's Green is the most important color. And so do you think another similar non-African-American uh, head of a network just doesn't doesn't think of it the same way, isn't as offended, no, I, doesn't think she I, could get away with it. I think it would, my personal opinion on this is I think it would have just been a different issue. I think they would have handled it where Roseanne would have done a mea culpa, you know, a public mea culpa saying it was wrong. But I don't know if they would have actually canceled the show because canceling the show is a very harsh punishment yeah. for somebody basically doing a drunken tweet, you know, as she called her ambient tweet or whatever. But if she was truly you know, sorry about it, and she wanted to apologize, I'm sure people would say, all right, well, you know, as Valerie Jarrett, who was so generous about it, said, let's make this a learning moment. It probably could have turned into that, and, you know, they could have kept the show, because the people who watch it like her anyway. Yeah. So it's not like people watching and go, I hate that Roseanne, but I'm compelled to watch this show. Yeah. I mean, the people who were watching it knew what they were getting. They knew, they know who Roseanne is. But also, that person is different from the show. They're two different entities, too, you know. We watched it in my family. My girlfriend loved that show when yeah. she was a kid, and we watch it. And I don't watch too many three-camera sitcoms. It's yeah. just not what I'm drawn to. But <laughs> for funny. what it was, I think it was well done. I actually do. And yeah, I think... I, I ain't mad at the show at all. Yeah. And I think the, yeah. the representation of... The middle mm-hmm. American, which got a lot of yeah. critique. There's no reason they can't do that yeah, with a character absolutely. not named Roseanne. Yeah. Yeah. They could still explore that. That's still worth yeah, exploring. Yeah, and it's more of a lazy Hollywood thing to reboot something <laughs> more yeah. than anything else. And by lazy, I mean they feel it's safe because it has a built-in audience and they're betting on that. But I think the show actually surprised a lot of people. I don't think anybody thought it would get the numbers that it got. But I'm actually more surprised that it got canceled immediately than anything else. That actually surprised me, you know, just knowing how Hollywood is. Oh, yeah. Know? Knowing yeah. that this isn't a moneymaker. This was a the cash moneymaker. machine. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it had proven great. itself already for years and network machines. television, which is yes. not the right. not the entity it once was. Yes. Yeah. Disney needs that. Disney doesn't have ESPN. Disney needs right. a show like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all of the networks kind of do. They're looking for it. Um, I want to talk about your book. I find it very interesting because, you know, I'm a big sports fan. Love yeah. this stuff. We were yeah. talking a little bit about it when you walked in. I always get teased about, because I'm from Southern California, about my Laker and Dodger Loyalty. More about the Dodgers, which is fascinating to me. Like, even in L.A., people say, you're a Dodger fan? I'm like, motherfucker, I live in L.A. Why are you asking me that? <laughs> I'm supposed to be a Dodger fan. Yeah. You know, because we have so many carpetbaggers from other places, I think. But the funny so, thing yeah. is no one assumes that it might be the Angels, right? Right. Yeah. That's never a question. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a yeah. White Sox-Cubs no. thing. South or, side, north side? No. Or a Clippers thing, either. Yeah. Nobody said, why aren't you a Clippers fan? You know, <laughs> It's more, why are you a Clippers fan? Is that type of thing, you know? But, uh... 
So I love this title, by the way, The Greatest What Ifs, because to me it's a philosophical question. I mm-hmm. love philosophical questions. What what drew you to to write a book like this? And the book is, can, can you describe it? It's basically you, where, uh, you chose a lot of people to write um, possible alternate scenarios right. for some of our greatest sports events, right? I tapped 31 right. writers and 31 because Malcolm Gladwell wrote the intro. Yeah, which is great. He, you know, and wait, let me just talk yeah. about that for a second because – He's got a lot of nerve, by the way, mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell, because I was arguing about how great a game golf was, yes. and he was trying to slam golf by arguing about golf courses and country clubs. I'm like, Malcolm, make a distinction here. You're slamming the sport because you don't like country clubs, and I get it. And he, he wouldn't give it up. He finally kind of gave it up. And then he talks about how great Tom Watson is in golf in, this, in the that, and opening. That's, that's the yeah. only, right, Tom Watson hitting the pebble. I just wanted to take the moment to slam Malcolm. So I've talked to Malcolm about his appearance on your show, and yes. he... Well, a few things. First of all, he thinks of his show, Revisionist History, as an argument. And sometimes he's making the argument full-throatedly, and sometimes he's putting it out there just to see what you think. And his show's a brilliant show. Love his show. I'm kidding. You know I love him. Well, he thought that your discussion that you had with him about golf was the best discussion, was exactly what he was trying to inspire, this sort of back and forth. Yeah, not coming at him on a personal level. And I think you're both right, except less you, because I don't love golf. But (laughs) I think you... But you put it in your book! You put it in well, your book. Malcolm wanted to write about yes, it. Yes, but you say you don't agree, but all the world can read it now. There's it's in your book. There's literally no golf chapter because everyone who tried to sell me on a golf chapter was... It's the introduction. Well, yes. It's better than a chapter. It's the first thing you read. <laughs> but then, it's exalted to a place. But then he takes... But then he uh, talks about what if the slave trade came from East Africa instead of West Africa and yes, how he might did. that he affect... He pivoted. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The right, right, classic right. He was keeping it a hundred, as we like mm-hmm. to say, yes. So, uh... What I wanted to do was mm-hmm. take the thing that we as sports fans always do. Kind which of that is bar argument. The bar argument mm-hmm. and apply structure to it and give it some rules. Because right. I think usually when sports fans engage in what if, they're really engaging in if only. And we have to as sports mm-hmm. fans because there are 121 professional sports teams now that the Knights are the 31st in the NHL. So mm-hmm. 121 major league sports teams. Mm-hmm. And of those 121, um, no, sorry, 123, 32 in the NFL. 119 of the 123 will end their season on a loss or being eliminated from the playoffs. So without what if, without hope, why would we keep coming back as an entertainment property? If Mm -hmm. the Star Wars movies disappointed us to the extent that our sports teams disappoint us, there'd be no more Star Wars movies. And I really think what if and playing in our minds, in fact, you know, rewiring our minds a little bit where we say if we had made that draft pick, if the ref's call hadn't gone against us, especially for Sacramento Kings fans, for all these instances, mm-hmm. you know, but if if only for this one thing, our team would win the championship. And I got to thinking about that because I worked for NPR for seven years covering sports and I did seven Super Bowls and five World Series and Final Fours and World Cups and the Olympics. And there'd always be the winning team and there'd always be confetti. And yeah. one time, and I'm covering <laughs> it and I'm in the moment and I'm happy to be in locker rooms and talking to guys and feeling the sting of the champagne in my eyes. And I said to myself, you know, I am, and I have raised my kids like I was raised to be Mets fans and Jets fans. And I'm yep. a New Yorker. I could have been a Giants fan and a Yankees fan. Absolutely. I would have had nine championships in my life. Instead, I had one, yeah. one in 86. And so I kind of said to myself. Well, Jets, yeah. How well, old are you? I, I was born in, I was born three years after they won the oh, championship. Yeah. 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 Right. And the Knicks did win in 72, 73, but I was not a cognizant human then. I was on this earth. (laughs) So because of I did, what if my teams had that moment, what the normal fan did, I said to myself, this is worth pursuing. And then I just gave it some rules, which is there have to be higher stakes than just the golf thing of every time I talked about. Then then just it would have been great. Oh, right. right. Then, then just, what if Tom Watson loses? Well, then Rocco Mediate would have won. What if Rocco Mediate loses? Well, then maybe Tiger would have won that uh, that major. Mm-hmm. You know, it, with golf, it's always if one guy loses, the other guy wins. What are the ripples? What are the societal effects? So I mm-hmm. wanted to talk about, like, my Muhammad Ali and my Olympics chapter. That was, it had to have a bigger effect away from sports. It had to have a societal effect. Or there had to be a ripple that you don't even consider and the second and third order effects. Mm. Or it had to be such a solid argument. So Ben Lindbergh writes a chapter about PED testing in baseball back to 91 with charts and graphs and intellectual rigor. And you got to come out of that saying, wow, my mind has really changed. Mm -hmm. Or it has to be a history lesson 
in the guise of a what if. So Claude Johnson, who's with the Black Five Foundation, which is like the Negro Leagues of Basketball, writes mm-hmm. a story about Nat Sweetwater Clifton of the yeah, Harlem Rens. Such a great name. Throwing yeah. a pass away. Right. And it basically means that the NBA doesn't integrate for seven right. years. Well, the, the, the Harlem, Harlem Globetrotters in those days were the black NBA, basically. They, they were the yeah. barnstorming teams. The yeah. Harlem Globetrotters was actually a Chicago team. Yeah. The Harlem Wrens were the real New York team. Yeah. And the Wrens didn't like clowning. So guess yeah. which ones, you know, society. Right, onto. of course. But yes. the inflection point is this tournament where all the barnstorming teams and all the, the pre-NBA leagues get together and the Wrens could win the whole thing. Sweetwater Clifton is down by two against George Mikan's Lake and he throws the pass away and and Claude Johnson argues they would have won because they had momentum on their side and then when the league integrates they have a team in Dayton the team in Dayton folds and they invite the Wrens in but they have to take the folded team with their current record which was I think 4 and 20 mm-hmm. so they set the Wrens up for failure but had the Wrens won that tournament they could come in as a full bona fide member and they were a great team they yeah. would have been an inaugural member of the NBA it's really interesting because a lot of this I call time machine mm-hmm. thinking. <laughs> yeah. And time machine thinking is very fraught with logic based on things that actually happened and not like what I would call science fiction thinking. Yes. Which is uh, the ability to imagine a future, which is most people can't really imagine, you know. And But I think a lot of time machine thinking just changes facts, mm-hmm. you know. But facts only happen because of events that you know, lead up to those things, yep. you know. So it's very difficult to reimagine something, I think, you know. In in one of our chapters, what if the 2016-2017 uh, Golden State Warriors had a time machine yes. and played yeah, every... Yeah, that was very cool. Yeah. Every great team. I like how people... How you, how, who, who wrote that one? Ethan Strauss. Yeah, I like how he described how the people would react to them coming <laughs> back. It was yeah. very funny. He was good yeah. because he really yeah. leaned into... You could just use that as a conceit. Okay, they had a time machine. Yeah, and you yeah, don't really yeah. stop to consider... Like, what's the effect of time travel? Right. Is it like going Why from West Coast the Bulls to East Coast? To now? Yes. Yeah. Right. So, but he was also really good on considering that the Bulls constructed their roster in a way that they couldn't have known that the NBA would change this three-point shooting barrage. Right. So it's excellent science fiction, and it's also, I think, a, a pretty good way to think about if the Warriors would be uh, good versus the teams of the time. But you're right. I always take into account that you can't just say change this one variable. Every yeah. variable around it changes. There is the ripples and the way and the consequences that we can't even consider does it deal with the butterfly effect at all i did i I think you've talked about that a little bit i did um what what do you call it in your craft what do you call it when you're doing a script or a sitcom and you do one pass over the whole script uh Uh, like a rewrite well Sometimes you do a character pass. Oh, okay. Right? Sure, sure, so I did right. a butterfly pass because oh, I wanted to make sure that there oh, weren't yeah. more than three references to the butterfly flapping that's its wings. That's and awesome. I didn't need consistency because sometimes the butterfly flaps its wings in Omaha and there's a tidal wave in Okinawa. So I, right. I, you could have different places. Very powerful where the butterflies, butterflies very by the way. Butterfly. Nobody questions how powerful these butterflies yes, are. Yes, this is the Durant of butterflies. Yeah. This is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Before we get off the Warriors, I wanted to ask you are you a big Big, uh, basketball fan? Yeah. Um, are you a Warriors fan? I appreciate them from the aesthetic them level. Too. Yes. yes. Are they the best team ever? Okay. Which which team? Let's go back in time. Yeah. Which team? Because you also have to go by which set of rules you're playing. By. That's right. If there's no three pointer, I don't think that Steph Curry shots make much sense. Well, even they if, definitely do. Yes. I don't think right. Steph Curry makes. Then much a sense. lot of teams yeah. can beat them, but. Yeah. Three-point shot is around, but there are different rules like around hand-checking and aggressiveness and no flagrant fouls. Like if it's the rules of the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that the uh, Pat Riley Lakers. I don't think that Rolando Blackman, with his hand on your back, steering you exactly where he wanted you to go on the court. I don't think that that jibes well with today's touch foul NBA. So you're right, and and when Ethan, because you're going to slow players down to a certain extent, right? And one thing, and this is a cousin to the what if, so the all-time greatest player. If you want to tell me it's LeBron, I buy it. I mean, Jordan going six for six. There's nothing you could say against that. Well, you can say Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's the leading scorer of all yeah. time in who the never, NBA. Who who's has, not even the third or fourth who, in the conversation. Who has usually. multiple MVPs, you know, and yeah. has won championships with different teams. Yeah. Who spreads over several eras. Do you think if the Milwaukee know? Bucks were the Knicks and, and the, a huge metropolis held on and that was the only success they had, maybe Kareem gets elevated higher? 
because it's, it happens in Milwaukee. Because people forget about that championship? Yeah, I think so. Well, it's interesting because he played with Oscar Robertson, too. Yeah. You know. And he was Lou Alcindor for yeah. most of it. Yeah. I know. So maybe they just like, that was another brother, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how come, they, how come when uh, Kareem wins his first MVP, it's listed yeah. as the second MVP? Isn't Kareem yeah. his, his Muslim cousin? <laughs> Lou Alcindor's Muslim cousin who just looks just like him? So the cousin of the mm. What If is greatest player. And depending on the universe of players you have to choose from, mm -hmm. I think you can make the case I get the number one pick in this draft. If we're only playing with, say, the 50 best players of all time, okay. I might pick Bill Russell. Mm -hmm. Because he's a teammate, because he's that just impressive and imposing backstop on defense. But you've got to get your scoring from somewhere you if you're playing with Shaq? the 50 best. Well, I think so. Shaq was nasty, man. Yeah. When you a... think of Shaq in the late 90s, early aughts, whoo. Ooh, a lot of people forget that, Shaq, so as a Laker fan. But with the with the foul shooting still as the flaw. Shaq made him want to count it. Yeah. Chamberlain couldn't shoot free throws. Yeah. And, you know, he had a pretty good career. Okay, let's say we're casting the ultimate post-game show. Do you put Shaq or Bill Russell just for one segment? Bill the, is so wise. <laughs> oh, you mean who are you going to talk to? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Shaq was a genie in a movie. I mean, no, who's more entertaining than Shaq except Charles Barkley? That's right. Did Shaq rap with the Fushnickens? Was that one of his bands? <laughs> <laughs> so Russell never did that. Yeah. Dude, have you met Bill Russell? Um, no, but um, I had Kareem on a podcast, and he talked very fondly about Bill Russell yeah. and said some stories that I did not know about. Kareem really looked up to Russell. He was really an icon for him, and rightly so. You know? Kareem is one of these guys. Russell doesn't get enough credit, by the way, for a lot of things. Yeah, for mm -hmm. just being uh, socially aware right. and for being brilliant. Right man at the right time. When I met him, uh, you know, everyone asked about his rings. He has a special ring made for uh -huh. just one ring for all the 11, which I think is amazing. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think that uh, mm -hmm. Kareem, if he never played basketball, mm -hmm. and maybe his life choices would have been, you know, would have been uh, steered in different directions. Yeah. But just if he had his scholarship, his body of work, his interest in life would absolutely be worthy as a podcast guest. That guy yeah. is so interesting if you never mention the sport but of basketball. do you basketball. think it's interesting because we know he played basketball? If the guy was just seven two, no, it'd no. be interesting. Right. What if this guy wrote about the Buffalo Soldiers? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd <laughs> and he actually be very thoughtful two. about it too. You know, it's interesting. Uh, in the book, um, there's an interesting mix of not just sports, but there's definitely history lessons. Yeah. You know, there's so much that if you're uh, both a sports and a history fan, it's kind of like the way art and history go together, which I appreciate. You know, um, you learn so much about. Uh, hidden things in there, which Gladwell does a lot in his podcast, too. And uh, the Ali one was interesting because for a lot of people, it uh, explained to them the situation of what was happening at the time with with his... Um, his draft deferment. Yeah, with the yeah. whole draft deferment and the, uh, the way that the decision went down. I find that an interesting chapter because Ali is such an iconic figure that transcended sports. Right. To ask that question, what if about Ali? What if he had gotten his draft deferment? Yeah. Right. And it's a fast. It's a more interesting question than it appears initially. Right. Right. Because yeah. you think I th that's exactly right, and that's yeah. the appeal of it. Oh, he gets to fight more. He's yes. even better. Right. If he's the greatest now, think of how much better he would be. And Lee Monville makes the case. He yes. probably doesn't lose to Frazier. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Lee Monville makes the case that he'd probably have a couple more wins under his belt, but maybe the heavyweight division shakes out in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. However, he doesn't become the icon because, like we were talking about in creativity and limits, because he doesn't have the opportunity, essentially, to become a martyr. He's a mouthy guy who doesn't want to serve in the war and then he said okay you don't have to serve in the war what has he ever sacrificed mm -hmm. what has he ever stood for right. it's all self-serving the kind of closed-minded american who didn't like him at the time mm -hmm. when he changed his name from cassius clay still doesn't like him for three years as he's wandering in the wilderness as he's made to pay his penance people come around people sour on the war but people come around to how convicted he was how mm -hmm. much he really meant it and the fact that he never strayed and never swayed i think really convinced people that this is a guy who lived his beliefs yeah. and that's the guy he became and without that good case that he doesn't become a martyr also i was talking to dave zyron who also wrote an ali book mm -hmm. he just points out from a boxing perspective so ali starts he's really slippery he's hard to tag he's he's a swift fighter by the end he's slow he's plotting but he's a powerful fighter mm -hmm. without that interregnum kind of thrust upon them he probably doesn't change styles so it's hard to say immediately though, yeah. it is hard to say what it, what the thing so that, and, and that means he probably doesn't well i don't know parkinson's 
isn't visited upon him so soon. But mm-hmm. also, I think a boxing expert would say, if you took the Ali of the early, if you took the early Ali and considered him one boxer, and you took the late Ali and considered him another, they'd both be in the top ten. So that's impressive. Yeah, but to me, what's missing from that argument yeah. is Ali made the choices to do that himself. Like Ali was a very intelligent boxer in terms of strategy. Yeah, you know, like I believe he would have adjusted because. He was a smart boxer. as like, Ali, you know who else was a smart boxer? It was Tyson. Oh, he was what, brilliant. Wasn't given enough credit for it. Tyson and Ali both had the ability to break down boxers of all eras and tell you exactly why they were great. Yeah. Like, what were their weaknesses? How they would have fit in that equation? It's fascinating, you know. Um, and Tyson is in the book as well. I, he, what, if, what if he had beat Buster Douglas? And the idea is there. And why is that an interesting argument? Well, I think the it's... The Tyson Buster Douglas one. I didn't know that it would be until Jeremy mm-hmm. Schapp convinced me that how the heavyweight division changes. And also, there probably it, it probably is true that he's never wandering around judging whatever pageant was in Indiana, so maybe he doesn't go to jail for a time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, that's he important. He wasn't idle, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's hilarious. Yeah, I think that Tyson... You know, Tyson and Ali are pretty interesting because you might not think this about Tyson, but to some degree, he has this tremendous amount of Mm self-awareness. To some degree, he has no self-awareness, right? But to some degree, he has this tremendous amount of self-awareness. I think that's why he bites the ear because he realizes it's a desperate desperate attempt. It's the sort of thing, the sort of Hail Mary that like Trump did in the election, actually. Do something crazy. It didn't work in one case and much to our detriment, it did in the other. Yeah. It is fascinating. Going back to Ali, what's interesting is that he's put in this position. Like history, it's amazing how history intervenes to define you as well. Because if you go back and you actually look at Ali's positions, you know, like he actually had a very self-serving position not to go to war. It wasn't so much what it feels like today. It had really to do with the nation of Islam, you know, and some of the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And many of those teachings were very separatist, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ali had some radical ideas, which I don't even think were his ideas. I think he was repeating the ideas of the Nation of Islam about separatism and race mixing. And, and I think in the book it even mentions he supported George Wallace. Yeah. You know, and that sort of thing. But he said things like that on shows. And <laughs> they, were kind, of, they yeah. were kind of overlooked because he was treated as a buffoon at the time. Yeah. And kind of as a clown. So it's interesting. I don't believe those ideas could have held up had he not had the war and those things that were bigger things going against it. You know, It's I mean? so both crazy and annoying how history is defined not in that moment, but what we've come to expect yeah. or what we've come to believe. And the idea of Ali as the secular saint is yeah. so defined by yeah. the fact that the war was shown to be a huge mistake. Right. And Americans turned on the war because of the body toll. Yeah. And, you know, I did an interview with Brian Kilmeade of Fox and Friends, and he right. told me that Ali was his favorite athlete of all time. Wow. And knowing Brian Kilmeade's politics, I said, that's kind of surprising. And he just cited his charisma and his rebelliousness and how his dad didn't like Ali. So he liked Ali, just his, uh, his, his personality. Mm-hmm. but not his character. Ali was so great that he could make you love him and become this secular saint, this icon, yeah. even if you don't deeply engage in what he was actually saying. Yeah. And I think our society, time and time again, in the moment, vilifies people of a certain, um, just of a certain character. And mm-hmm. Ali is that kind of person, vilifies those people, and then comes around, and then we forget we vilified those people who were seen as rebels at the time, and we can't even recognize it in the moment when the same thing is going on. And then the flip side, what's interesting to me, Mike, is you look at Joe Lewis. Now, Joe Lewis decided to enlist in the, I think it was the Army. Yeah. And D- Joe Lewis... Americans love Joe Lewis. Like he was actually an athlete that the white public embraced. Sure. As as a hero, which was revolutionary in that day to embrace to have a black hero who beat the shit out of white guys. <laughs> you know. Nazis. <laughs> yes, well backspelling. Yeah. Yeah. But out of the bum of the month of whatever it was. I mean, I'm just breaking it down for its essence, you know. And he had all that popularity. He was an American icon and is almost forgotten at his death. 
boxing wasn't was the, that amazing boxing I mean, was the most popular sport yeah a black guy's gonna be the best at it he was just yeah. the best at it so america i guess consciously or unconsciously had a choice mm -hmm. what do you do with it 30 years before with jack johnson or 20 years before mm -hmm. there was all this denigrating of his accomplishments you know he just got pardoned and the new york times did a story really interesting looking back at their coverage of the time mm -hmm. and they just they just shit all over it's terrible them. i've read a lot of those yeah. uh, newspapers at yeah, the time. yeah nothing everyone everyone he beat was a tomato can every accomplishment that should be conferred mm -hmm. upon him was denigrated and the out and out racist comments that were made about him yeah. too were amazing. It, it seems like yeah. it just took especially at the time when we're on the brink of war it would just take so much mental energy to do that to someone like joe lewis who also wasn't violating the man act uh, as far as we know right mm -hmm. so it would just i think tear the nation apart so the better strategy for unifying a nation about to go into war was to find a very conscripted piece to make with its black champion which is to make sure he never transgressed and then to say essentially he's one of the good ones well he's one of the good ones was definitely what was said but it was accepted back then by yeah. everybody yeah because blacks also desired to have one of the good ones representing sure. them at that time you know they did not want like a rebel <laughs> It's like, brother, what are you doing in there? Don't, don't be messing up stuff for us. You know, it's always that type. They're of gonna pound cake them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, also, uh, the Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs thing. I didn't have a chance to read that. Yeah. One, but I remember that when it happened, and I found that a fascinating thing. To me, I didn't. I was kind of young, and I didn't understand why they were having this. Like, I'm like, this guy is so old. Why? Yeah. Why, what's going on here? You I know? was young too, and yeah. I was... And I was rooting for Billie Jean King at sure. the time. I didn't even know who either of them I, was. I couldn't tell you what a feminist is, but I'm like, why? Yeah. The old guy I gets her the to tennis kick his, champion. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't like the way he was trashing her. Yeah. I'm like, I hope she kicks his ass. And I didn't have a, you know, any kind of point of view in terms of feminism or that type of thing it was just it was a pure sports angle in it i'll tell you yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit how that ends and i wanted okay. to have a chapter like this so what if he she had lost yeah. the answer is she definitely would come back and kick his ass the second time they would so have a rematch she, she'd have to that's yeah. just who billy jean king is right. we're not saying she wasn't losing the conceit of the chapter is what if she lost let's give her a hamstring injury or something <laughs> like that <laughs> right, there right. is no stopping billy jean king from beating bobby riggs yeah he, he, she also looked at you know at the time uh chris everett was on the scene and martina navratilova was 18 or 19 she'd right. be the she's the one that she would demand a rematch and get it yeah yeah well martina navratilova it wouldn't have been a contest yeah no. also there's a chapter about nixon now this is fascinating so nixon played football yeah so we also have we haven't even mentioned there's a five episode upon further review podcast yes yes yes, yes please where we took that, which is different great. episodes right. different chapters and turned them into real audio so. so you're taking from the book and making podcasts yes out. yes okay. sometimes great. it's the reporter who's doing it um so sometimes it's a modified version of that steve kornacki of msnbc wrote a chapter yeah. what if uh drew bledsoe never got hurt and brady took over <laughs> yeah, right. so we act that out i look at the title that i'm like whatever yeah it's the patriots it, well i yeah. want to have a very meat and potato sports <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah that is true there right, is something on, about so what are we going to give him three more championships I hope you didn't give him more than a page. I don't know. <laughs> no, well, what we did on the podcast was right. we invented this fake Boston sports radio show, Dougie, oh, cool. Dougie and the Donk. Oh, and yeah. uh, in that universe, the Patriots have been awful for 18 years. And they get Steve Kornacki on the show to say, you know, I've been through uh, Patriots history. I really think this, this 199th overall draft pick, Tom Brady, could have been their savior. And the guys are like, Tom Brady, what are you talking <laughs> about, bro? Uh, right. So for the Nixon chapter... We got Leon Nafak, who did the Slow Burn podcast. I don't know if you listened to that, which was all about mm -hmm. Watergate. Yeah. And he reported the chapter from the book, the chapter from the books written by Princeton historian Julian Zelizer, because Nixon loved football, but weighed 150 pounds and played line. And he was mm -hmm. terrible. And yeah. he was an abused tackling dummy. <laughs> but the, the <laughs> fascinating thing is... I am not a tackling dummy. Yes, tackled me in my Republican cloth coat. Mm -hmm. The fascinating thing is the the lessons that he learned from his coach, Chief Newman, were absolutely the lessons he took into politics, which really? is essentially winning is the only thing, mm -hmm. and there is no glory at all to being a loser and do absolutely anything it takes to win. And the wow. other thing that Leon fleshed wow. out is when he's at Whittier College, mm -hmm. home of the poets, yeah, he played football for the poets. Yeah, um, that's in my head, Whittier. There was, there was an, an eating club or fraternity, but it was for the quarterbacks and the mm -hmm. running backs and the skill positions, and there was no 
equivalent club for the blue collar guy and Nixon started it. He started the fraternity for the lineman, the forgotten man. And that is exactly his playbook as a politician, as president. Yeah, it's fascinating. And if he, and the question, if he had been good at football. Right. So, because his career happened because he wasn't good is what I guess is what we're assuming. Right? The It's, you know, armchair psychology being what it is, but... Right. The lessons are so stark. The fact that he was this terrible football player who was just right. used for practice. So we're saying if he had... Seared into his consciousness. Yeah. If he had been good, maybe give him some self-confidence. Maybe mm-hmm. it gives him some sense of self-worth. Maybe yeah. he becomes more like a person like uh, Gerald Ford, uh-huh. who was an All-American at yeah. football. Right. Jack Kemp. You know, these confident guys yeah. who had some skill on the field, learned something about fair play. Were more confident about themselves. Yeah, yeah. And didn't look at life yeah. as this... This life or death struggle. Zero sum game. That's right. Yeah. Win by any means. Yeah. yeah. That's real fascinating. It's real, real interesting to have that as a what if, you know, that, those type of questions. The uh, 36 Olympics is interesting also for some of those same reasons. I mean, when I think of what Jesse Owens just meant to, to the country at the time, and yet, you know, you come over and you're treated a certain way and not having that opportunity, you know, those are always tough ones when you think of, would history have done the same things just in a different way? Mm-hmm. You know, especially a lot of people pose that as an answer when they don't want things to happen too quickly. Like during the civil rights era, they say, "Well, why are we in such a rush? You know, good people will do the right thing, you know, in the right time." You know, <laughs> I always think when it's you who's getting shit on, you yeah. want them to stop shitting. Yeah, you know? yeah. You don't want them to get constipated for it to stop. You yeah. Know? William Wilberforce, uh, I'm sure, was thinking that when he wrote Amazing Grace a hundred years prior. Right. Um. That that chapter, so I don't think that if the U.S. had boycotted Hitler's Olympics, I think Hitler still rises to power. Shira Springer, who wrote the chapter, yeah. argues that. And Lenny Riefenstahl still does her documentary. Right. She still, <laughs> she's, she'll t- Albert Speer still builds his right. building, all that stuff. What doesn't change is Nazism. What changes is the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Because the Olympics became this means to burnish the credentials of a dictator. Mm. And when they were deciding the 2022 games, which will be in Beijing... It's because the only two countries bidding on it were China and Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Because democracies, Oslo was uh, thinking about bidding on it, then their, then their legislature said, no, this is a horrible deal for our people. Mm-hmm. So democracies, functioning democracies, are not so interested in the Olympics anymore because what the Olympics have become is this gigantic white elephant that a country can project outward, oh, look how great a country we are, but actually hurts the citizens of the country. The World Cup, too. Uh-huh. Even with the with South Korea hosting the Winter Olympics, you had uh, Un's uh, sister, whoever it is, sneaking over and getting yes. all the publicity. <laughs> so in a way, she kind of stole the spotlight to to burnish that. Yeah. Uh, Even when an actual democracy gets the games, yeah. the autocrat <laughs> yes. still sneaks over yeah. and steals <laughs> the credit. It's very interesting. I wanted to ask you a couple, uh, just other kinds of what ifs yeah. that are interesting to me, like. One that is kind of interesting, I'm a big Beatles fan, what if the Beatles had never been formed and that British invasion never happened? Do you think the same revolution in music happens? Oh, wow. See? Good turn of phrase, yeah. Which Maybe revolutions two through eight are different. Yeah, um, what if, so do you think that you need the alchemy? So if we were to write this chapter yeah. and you, you pitched it to me, I would right. say, all right, let's talk about how it doesn't happen. Yeah. Maybe we focus on the alchemy between Lennon and McCartney. Okay. What if those, the, the greatest singer-songwriters of their generation didn't grow up less than a mile from each other? Mm. Maybe we take them both in different directions. Mm-hmm. Maybe skiffle music and John Lennon becomes somewhat of a passing fad. Maybe both of their mothers don't pass away. Yeah. You know, it's it's maybe insane. maybe Paul mm-hmm. McCartney goes into more of the standards. What is mm-hmm. American music without the British influence? How much more yeah. rhythm and blues? But the funny thing is, and British music redefined American music also right. because their influence. The Brits for, find for the, black the American Delta music. blues music. Yes, exactly. And then bring it back to us, and so we're like, oh, uh, some palatable guys with slightly. I believe long you. Haircuts. You lost something over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if uh, what if all these guys with British accents didn't sing in that fake muddy water style? Yeah, 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 yeah right. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah, it's a, a, a large. Does the British invasion happen without the Beatles? What about the animals? What about the Rolling Stones? I mean, so okay. do they do they get a chance to invade? I gotta say, Freddie and the Dreamers don't happen, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of talent there. <laughs> there's the, there's a lot that never should have come across <laughs> across the Mersey. You're ferry, ferry yeah, ferry, the they should have never yeah. ferried across the Mersey. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting, though, you know, because it was such a huge event. 
at at that time, you know. A more philosophical one, throw this at you, like, I was talking with my daughter about this, because we always have philosophical discussions. What if religion had never been invented? It probably would have to be invented, right? Uh That's one of those... Is that a necessary thing, you think? I think... Uh, That people... There's just no way it could not be invented. I Well, because it occurred in so many different isolated circumstances. I mean, yeah. we, it's like we've run the experiment right. thousands of times and there's always yeah. a need to explain death. Yes. And that's... It, and then from there, well, how did it start? It, we need to know what happens when it ends. That's fascinating. So how did it you start? Feel religion explains death more than life. Well, I think that's the impetus because that's the that's mystery the of the unknown. You mm-hmm. can really think about it if you have some time, you know, between cave paintings and hunting down your mastodons. <laughs> yes. You can really think about, hey, where'd we come from? But maybe not. Uh, but I definitely think when you go, there's always the death ceremonies and there has to be a story and then there has to be a creation myth and then you fill in the gaps from there. Yeah. yeah. My daughter uh, said, what if the library in Alexandria had not been destroyed? You know, what if that, that sees, she's a college student. I have time. I don't have time to think about that kind of crap. <laughs> but I did, a, what if I did a wonder, catalog that's Yes, hot? but what if the dinosaurs had never gone away? Oh, they were. They would still be here. Yeah. Oh, this this touches See? into the biological to an extent. These are big what ifs. Maybe we wouldn't have uh, fossil fuel based. Maybe the oh. death of the dinosaurs wow. are uh, thousands, no, nope, millions of years later, bringing about the death of the human because of climate change. Maybe because of fossil you could fuels. Make the case. I like that. And then, ironically, there'll be these big mutations from all the all the bad stuff that's going on, and we'll have dinosaurs again. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Little ones, more efficient ones. It's an, <laughs> Yeah. Well, why? Why dinosaurs? dinosaurs the well, original disruptors. <laughs> why dinosaurs got to be efficient? <laughs> uh, well, thanks so much, Mike, uh, for being in the show. It went so fast. You know, there's so much to talk to you about, it, and I love all your thoughts on current events and and all that kind of stuff. I did want to ask you one thing um, about this: the Bill Clinton interview. Did you see yeah. that recently? Yeah. Um, for those of you that didn't see it, I'm always disappointed when I see Bill Clinton in these types of circumstances. I don't know why it's disappointing to me, but it is. Yeah, because you, know? you just want to hear about his mystery novel. That's yeah. all you came in for. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and James Patterson's there going, oh, my God. But he's in the easiest situation possible. Mm-hmm. Interview situation. The, you know, I forget his names in NBC News. Would uh, Monica Lewinsky, I think, said she'd like an apology. I could be wrong about that. She may have said that, but. She's been doing a lot of uh, talking about certain things, bullying and that kind of stuff, and talking about her experience. And she's always been kind of, for whatever reason, the put-upon one in that whole situation, you know. But he was just asked very simply, would he apologize to her, you know? And he got upset about this and made it about him in a way that was really not good. Right. And I think it's because... He's the most successful politician of his generation, and that playbook absolutely worked for him. And it worked to talk about bimbo eruptions and dragging $100 through Mm -hmm. uh, a trailer park and to denigrate Monica. And I think to his mind, um, look, here's someone who flirted with me and showed me her underwear and gave me a blowjob, and I owe her an apology. She... The whole thing probably ruined my president. Could have ruined my presidency. <laughs> yeah, and he could oh. cite the polls. It's very hard to get someone who is at as powerful as a person could ever be in 1998, and then take him away from 1998, and then make him play by rules other than 1998 rules. Right. I think it's just like we're talking about Pat Riley's Knicks. It's a little yeah. like that. Could they adopt their game? And I guess to a great extent, it showed that uh, Clinton mm-hmm. didn't have to adopt his game. I remember, you remember, I was talking to someone younger than me, the lesson at the time seemed to be, and it seemed the progressive lesson that Americans are just too hung up about sex and right. why can't we be like the French? And they yeah. just had, they just yes. had, you know, Mitterrand had uh, his, his mistress shows yeah. up at the funeral. Like, that's the way to think. We're just a bunch of Puritans. This was as much as woke America believes what it believes now. That's what woke America believed then. Yeah. You know? And so now here we are when most of that stuff has been turned on the head. Wow, it's kind of Clinton turned never around. Even thought about it. It's totally. turned around, right? Yeah. 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 Does it seem more puritanical now? I don't think so. I think mm-hmm. that it's it's less black and white and it's more nuanced, but mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me that then all these arguments were being, you know, had in on three networks or four with uh, CNN and a couple of gigantic newspapers. And the referees were people like Maureen Dowd. Mm-hmm. And now everyone gets a say and everyone has an opinion. And, mm-hmm. you know, Monica definitely seems like not just the victim, but the most compelling person within the narrative. And then she was cannon fodder and no one ever stopped to think about it. Yeah. If Clinton doesn't have that affair, if he's not a womanizer, 
Now there's a what if, because mm-hmm. to me, Gore gets elected. I think that that might happen, although there are so many things where Gore should have been elected, like an <laughs> yes, accurate count. that's true. But also, yes. I think you could... He screwed the pooch anyway when he you shouldn't could, have. Yeah. You could make the case mm-hmm. that if the Gore-Clinton, because Gore was very involved, the Gore-Clinton administration hadn't delivered to America such peace and prosperity, we wouldn't, as a country, have felt we had the leeway, nah, let's let's elect this irascible Texan. Yeah. You know, that's, it was that's a really, interesting, yeah. It was a really... Um, it was a really irresponsible thing that we did to say that let's give it a go because Gore's personality is familiar and annoying. And yeah. we, we didn't take the responsibility seriously. The left gets comfortable really fast. You know, that happened with Obama, you know, and voting for Hillary. I thought it's like, well, there's some things I don't like about her. Gosh, this is an important election. Yeah. You know, you can't, you have to keep your eyes open here, you know. Yeah. And I, I mean... Something about the steadiness and the calmness of Obama convinced us that things weren't as tumultuous in America as they are. Yeah. And then again, if... Things were more civil, maybe. Sure, yeah. because, you know, Obama had this way, and even though he was, you know, underwater in popularity for stretches of his administration, like, what is reality? There is all this stuff going on and things are crazy, but look at the president. Look how he talks about steering the ship of state a couple degrees and then we get, you know, gay marriage being legal. And that's the definition of progress. That's the definition of reality. Mm -hmm. The slow, steady, factual basis is what's real. But, you know, Mm -hmm. the tumult under the surface is very close to being real. I mean, then again, you could... And and so my point with Obama is that no drama Obama possibly convinced us that there would never be such tumultuous drama as we've experienced. Yeah. But you can also say that, but for James Comey making his announcement and the Russians doing their thing with the election and Hillary Clinton not visiting states in the upper Midwest, maybe she gets elected and we still don't recognize the state of America. Mm-hmm. Our definition of a state of America does hinge on 80,000 votes, right? Mm-hmm. That's, it's, we have defined reality to such a huge extent by those 80,000 votes, by the fact that, you know, I think so much of that is bullshit yeah. personally. Yeah. It's the only identity politics, which is okay, <laughs> you know, well, for people. But if Obama doesn't run, do you think Hillary would have been uh, elected in 08? Probably not. She beats McCain? Probably not. Because it would seem that it would seem that that was a change year and maybe McCain Palin seemed more changed. He than, doesn't pick Palin though. Yeah. Not if, if not if Hillary's running. I think if Hillary's running he's more inclined to pick a woman. Think so? Uh, yeah. Definitely. What if he picked a brother? <laughs> Michael Steele and who's the bench behind him <laughs> very good Mike. although I do think if Colin Powell had decided to run in 2001 we yeah. might never have had Obama yeah but Colin Powell running is one of those things that I, it just seems an impossibility. Yeah. You know what my favorite thing say, Colin yeah. Powell ever said was? <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a few of them. But <laughs> when uh, when Harry Belafonte was criticizing him, he said, uh-huh. "Yeah, I prefer the music of the Mighty Sparrow." Uh, do you know? Do you know Mighty nice. Sparrow? No, 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 no. He's this yeah. he's this uh, calypso singer That's who nice. check out his lyrics. He is so pointed. He right. has the most scathing lyrics. He is Bob Dylan, Masters That's of War esque, bringing hilarious. it. <laughs> and uh, I I found out about my. Sparrow based on a diss track issued by Colin Powell. Well, so I that's think, why I don't think he runs president because he'll, he'll say things like that. Nice. That's why his wife didn't want to run. She knew he would keep it 100. <laughs> well, Mike, thanks so much for coming on. It's so great. I mean, it's been a while. I've wanted to run for a while. I'm so happy uh, we could do this. And congratulations on the book. I hope it shoots up uh, up the charts for you. And I got to listen to the podcast based on it now. Yeah, five and episodes. And the, the podcast is called Upon Further Review, right? Right. Great. Hey, Larry, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Mike Pesca in the house, everybody. Go buy that book, listen to the podcast, and listen to the gist. Don't forget. A lot of assignments. Lots Lots to do. My audience has assignments. You know, keep them busy. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Larry.